Please open your Bible to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 2. And we'll take for our reading this morning the first 18 verses. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he demanded of them where Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, art not the least among the prince of Judah. For out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privily called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the young child. And when he had found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. When they had heard the king, they departed. And, lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. When they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. When they were departed, Behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night, and departed into Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel, weeping for her children, and would not be comforted, because they are not. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for sending your Son into this world. We thank you that he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. We thank you for salvation and life and freedom in him. I pray that as we consider this text of Scripture this morning, you would help us to see your Son with fresh eyes. I pray that we would be moved by your Spirit to love him more. We just commit ourselves into your care. In his name, Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a parent of one of the boys my son plays cricket with. 
And he asked me what I do for a living, and then the conversation got on to Christmas. I said how much I enjoy this time of year. And then he asked me a question that no one has ever asked me before. He said, do you see the bad side of Christmas? I knew exactly what he meant, and I had to answer honestly that, no, I I don't see the bad side of Christmas very often. Christmas has, for the most part, been a happy time for my family and for the people that I minister to. But again, I, I knew what he was talking about. There is a bad side of Christmas, isn't there? Uh, People who are lonely often feel that more keenly at this time of year. Uh, With all the emphasis on family, people who have lost loved ones are reminded of them. They, They miss them and they grieve. For some, Christmas brings to the fore the fractious nature of their family, especially if they're separated or divorced and have young children. The kids are shuffled between one parent and the other. For others, it's the case that one side of the family isn't on speaking terms with the other. Uh, There is long-standing resentment and bitterness that always seems to bubble up at Christmas time. And then sadly, there are always those who drink too much and end up in arguments and fights and in the emergency rooms of hospitals. There is a side of Christmas that we don't really like to think about and the same is true of the Christmas story. There is a part of it that we'd rather not focus on. It's too awful. It's too upsetting. I'm talking about what has come to be known as the Massacre of the Innocents. and This is what we're going to consider in our sermon this morning. Uh, This Christmas time we're not going to ignore it. Uh, We're not going to quickly pass over it. I know it's uncomfortable, but God has put this account in his word for us. Uh, There is something here he wants to communicate to us. We've talked about the man who ordered the deaths of these children a number of times over the years. Uh, Here in Matthew chapter 2, he was old and sick and losing his mind. Uh, Herod the Great was known for his ruthlessness and his cruelty. It was said that it was better to be Herod's sow than Herod's son. And that's because he had gone so far as to murder three of his own sons. He was a first-class tyrant. It's not hard to imagine the thought processes of this paranoid king uh, when wise men from the east turned up in Jerusalem looking for a king who'd just been born, he must have immediately suspected that there was a rival to his throne. He was the king of the Jews. Who on earth were these men talking about? Presumably that title would go to one of his sons and not to some anonymous child that had just been born. Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I heard a preacher say that when Herod was troubled, of course all Jerusalem was troubled because everyone knew what he was capable of. 
I won't retell the story this morning except to say that the wise men found the child in Bethlehem but were warned of God not to go back to Jerusalem and tell Herod who and where he was. And that brings us to our text. I'll read it again, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. And it was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. The Greek word translated children in verse 16 is a masculine word and so the reference is to male children, to little boys. Why the age for this massacre was set at two years and under has to do with the time that Herod had inquired of the wise men. That is the time they first saw the star. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. Based on when the star had appeared, Herod reckoned that this child they were seeking could not be more than two years old. Now this has led some to suggest that Jesus must have been two years old or thereabouts when the wise men visited That assumes that the star first appeared when he was born, but it may have appeared when he was conceived in Mary's womb, or even before that, we we don't know. But whatever the case, this was the calculation Herod made. If he set the age limit at two, he was sure he would eliminate this so-called king of the Jews. We're also told in verse 16 how far this order extended It was applied to Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof. There must have been some border or some sort of boundary that marked off Bethlehem and the territory that pertained to it. This wasn't something that occurred across all of Herod's kingdom. Bethlehem was a small village and so it's probable that there were dozens of victims rather than hundreds. The Jewish historian Josephus provides a fairly detailed account of Herod's life and reign, but he doesn't record this event. This suggests that while it was incredibly significant and painful for those involved, it wasn't a notable incident in Herod's reign. It was a a blip compared to the other crimes that he perpetrated. I won't take us too far down this track, But can you imagine for just a moment the terror that was rained down on Bethlehem the day that Herod's thugs started going from door to door? From a parent's perspective, this is the the worst possible thing that anyone could do to you. This is perhaps the worst possible thing a human being can do. Take the life of a little child. I've mentioned it a couple of times. Uh, I've recently undertaken some fairly serious reading on the Holocaust. And the most harrowing accounts are those that involve the murder of children. Uh, I, I will never forget some of the things that I read. It's almost beyond belief that people could do such things. What Herod did here is in that category. Whenever this story comes up at Christmas or in my personal devotions, I've always wondered why. 
And it's not a question that, that sort of quietly or gradually forms in my mind. Oh, that's interesting. I wonder why that happened. No, it's always been more of a, a lightning bolt, even a flash of anger. Why? Why did this happen? Why did God permit Herod to murder these children to do the unthinkable? Maybe this is something that you've wrestled with. I don't have the answer to this question, but I I would like to share some things we can take away from this part of the, the Christmas story. I have five points drawn from the text that I trust will be a help and and maybe even an encouragement. Now I realize that five points is two more than three. I realize I'm I'm breaking the classic sermon format, but do stick with me. Point number one this part of the birth narrative of Jesus reminds us that evil is real. Evil is real. We all, by nature, recoil at what Herod did. This troubles us greatly. As I said earlier, we don't like to think about this part of the story. Uh, It's not usually part of the nativity play that children perform. Uh, These verses don't usually appear in Christmas cards. Our response demonstrates that we are more than just matter in motion. We're, We're more than just a combination of chemicals and electricity. And furthermore, our response shows that we believe that Herod's actions were more than just one tiny part of the evolutionary drama of human history. No one sits back and says with cool detachment, oh well, it was just one powerful animal terminating the existence of some less powerful animals. No. (laughs) We all have this visceral reaction We we all see something so very wrong about this. We make a value judgment. We view this in moral terms without even realising that that's what we're doing. This happens all the time. Those who subscribe to the naturalistic, materialistic worldview will be outraged by something someone does to someone else. They'll be horrified. They'll call it wicked or depraved or evil. But according to their worldview, no such category exists. There is no moral value to human behaviour. It's just behaviour. It's just stuff doing things to other stuff. Our natural response demonstrates that there is something about human existence that transcends the material. It demonstrates that we all innately recognise that evil is a real phenomenon. It's not just a label that we've invented for a certain set of behaviours. It's not merely an idea, it's not a term that we came up with as a way to exercise control for the benefit of society. No, evil is real. We know it when we see it. We know it when we feel it at work within our own souls. I I want to do something that will bring me pleasure, but I know it will be at the expense of someone else. It will go against what I know is good and right. Of course, it's true that a person's perception of good and evil can be warped, but however distorted that might be, we've all experienced the alarm of conscience. That's wrong. Don't do that. 
To deny the existence of evil is to deny the witness that God has put in each one of us. This part of the Christmas story is a stark reminder that evil is real. And then point number two, it tells us that evil is a mystery. Now let me be very clear. I don't mean that evil is a mystery in the sense that we don't know where it comes from. Or that it is without explanation. We do know where it comes from and to a certain extent we understand why it exists. One of the favourite weapons in the atheist's arsenal is the so-called problem of evil. They like to attack the Christian faith with this problem when in truth it's a much bigger problem for them. They have no explanation for evil, none at all. In fact, according to the atheist's worldview, there is no such thing. When atheists talk about evil, they're being very, very inconsistent. And what I do mean here is that evil is often a mystery when it comes to the lives that it touches. If you were living in Bethlehem in the days and weeks after Jesus was born and it was your baby that was murdered, you might understand that it had something to do with that terrible man in Jerusalem who was losing his mind. But why did it happen to you? Why were you a victim and not someone in the next town? Why did Herod order this now and not ten years before? Why does moral evil impact some people's lives and not others? Why those particular people who were working in the Twin Towers on that particular day, the 11th of September 2001, and not others in another building on another day? Jesus addressed this in Luke chapter 13. Referring to a massacre in the temple that Pilate ordered, he said, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? Is that the explanation for the evil that touched their lives? They were were worse sinners than all the rest? Jesus said no. And he gave no explanation for their deaths. All he said was this, I tell you, nay, but except ye repent... He shall all likewise perish. This is the really hard part when it comes to the experience of evil. Many times this is the unanswerable question. Why this person and not that person? Why me and not them? Why now and not before? There are really only two truths with which we can console ourselves when we're confronted with this painful mystery. Truth number one. Evil is not outside the realm of God's sovereignty. When bad things happen, it's not as if God momentarily lost control, no. In some ways, this makes God's sovereignty harder to accept. But when we do, it really is a source of great comfort. Someone wiser than me and stronger than me knows what's happening. And it's his good plan that's being worked out in this world. And then truth number two, and this follows, while it may appear so to us, when evil impacts a person, it is never random or purposeless. Sometimes that purpose is beyond us to know. It it makes no sense why it happened to me or to them, but there is a purpose, and a good purpose. 
one that God is bringing to pass. Evil is real. Evil is a mystery. And then point number three, Satan is at work when men do evil. Now again, let me be clear, not every act of evil is a result of the direct influence of Satan. In fact, the great majority are not. Uh, Evil naturally resides in the human heart. Uh, Satan doesn't need to come along and fill it up. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. For from within, Jesus said, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, and so on. Satan is not directly behind every wicked thing that men and women do, but he delights in every wicked thing that men and women do. That's what he wants. They're doing his work. And that's exactly what we see in this part of the Christmas story. I doubt that Herod was possessed by the devil when he ordered this massacre, but he was most certainly doing the devil's work. This was yet another attempt by Satan to destroy the seed of the woman before that seed could crush his head. This is a thread we can follow through the Old Testament. The attempts to destroy the nation of Israel. The attempts to destroy the household of David through whom the Messiah would come. In fact, it's possible to see the very first murder in human history in this light. Yes, it was jealous Cain who killed his brother Abel, but it was also the opening battle in this great war. It was Satan endeavouring to destroy the promised seed, to destroy Messiah. Think of Pharaoh in Egypt ordering the murder of baby boys. Think of Athaliah and her attempt to destroy the royal family, to eradicate the house of David. Think of Xerxes' wicked decree at the behest of Haman to exterminate the Jews. All of this evil designed to bring to pass exactly what Satan has desired from the very beginning. Herod is to blame. This was evil that sprang from his own heart and yet we know it was Satan's bid to kill the Christ in the cradle before he could do what he had come to do before he could fulfil all of those ancient promises. It was an awful thing that happened. Our hearts are moved by all those parents who were bereaved of their little ones in such brutal circumstances. And I don't want to minimise that in any way. But it is comforting to know that Herod failed. Herod failed. And so did Satan. They failed. Their their evil designs were thwarted. The child Jesus escaped and grew up and did all of the things he had come to do. The fourth point I have for you this morning is perhaps the most obvious. I've already talked about it a little bit. And that is that evil destroys people's lives. Evil destroys people's lives. And it does so on both sides of the equation. It ruins the victim and the perpetrator. It's easy to see the pain and suffering that Herod caused. It's easy to see the destruction that was wrought as this evil flowed from his heart. 
Matthew draws our attention to this in verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. This is something that we see all around us. This is something we well understand. The harm and the sorrow that are caused by the evil actions of others. Barely a day goes by when we don't hear stories in the news about the victims of child abuse and domestic violence. We're aware of the harm caused by identity theft and fraud. We, we hear about the victims of bullying. We've seen the great distress that, be, that can be caused by things communicated and spread on social media. We've had royal commissions into some of the biggest and most powerful institutions in our society that have laid bare the evil they have done and how people have been hurt. We've all suffered in some way as a result of some evil perpetrated against us and we've all suffered as a consequence of the evil that we have perpetrated. Think for a moment about what the evil of his own heart had done to Herod. I mean, how damaged must a person be on the inside to order the murder of children? Herod's moral depravity is stunning. Sure, he'd amassed great wealth and great power. He could do and have just about anything he wanted. But what kind of person had he become? How great were the stains that he had indelibly inked on his own soul. He'd ruined himself completely and shortly after this he would plunge into the fires of hell forever. Evil totally destroyed his life. In Proverbs chapter 13 verse 15 we're told that the way of transgressors is hard. And there is no doubt that with evil there is often the experience of pleasure. It feels good for a while. But in truth, an evil life is a hard life. It's full of sorrow. It's full of regret. It's full of emptiness. The pleasures of sin come at great cost. God is not mocked. He has put this principle into the world that he created, that whatever a person sows, that's what they reap. Uh, One author expresses it like this. The way of the sinner is a hard way because it is unprofitable. Hard work and poor pay. The devil is a hard lord and a mean paymaster. It's a hard way because in the end it is usually a failure. Most men see only the present. And when summer is here, one feels it must never end. But winter comes on at last. It is a hard way because it is an unhappy way. It is a hard way because it ends in eternal ruin. No opportunity to repair the damage. A hard life here and hereafter eternal ruin. In the same vein, another writes, Men fight their way to hell as they do to heaven through much tribulation. It's true, isn't it? Men fight their way to hell as they do to heaven through much tribulation. 
the native perverseness of the will, the continual warfare with conscience, the absence of peace, the sting of sin, the certainty of destruction, all prove a way of thorns. The end of that way is death. The taskmaster will have his full tale of work. The paymaster will pay down his well-earned wages to the utmost farthing, death eternal. In scripture, sin is described as bondage. It's described as slavery. It's what leads to corruption and to death. Death in this life, the death of relationships, the death of ambitions, the death of hope. I've been struck by that of late. Sin really kills hope. Sin produces death in the body and in the mind and eventually the death of the soul in hell. There is no way around it. Evil is real. Evil is a mystery. Satan is at work when men do evil. Evil destroys people's lives. That's what we can glean from this little part of the Christmas story. And I realise it's rather bleak. It does bring us to my fifth and final point. Deliver us from evil. That's an appropriate response, isn't it? When we look evil in the face, as we do in this text, when we see what it can do to others and to us, when we feel it within ourselves, this is our prayer. Oh Lord, deliver us, please. And perhaps that was God's purpose in giving us this part of the story. There is much that I don't understand about the massacre of the innocents. But I do know this. It shows us very clearly that we needed a saviour. It shows us the depths of human depravity from which we needed to be rescued. It speaks of the great problem that Christ came to fix. This little part of the Christmas story is a sharp reminder of why that baby was born in Bethlehem. Why the Son of God came from heaven to earth. Why we desperately needed Him to come. We needed Him to deal with evil because we can't. We're we're too much in love with it. It has too much of a hold over us. We've been far too broken by it. The same evil that pulsed through Herod's heart is in all of ours. We're all fallen. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. It's only by God's grace that we haven't given expression to that evil to the extent that Herod did. And we've all suffered to some degree because of the evil that others have perpetrated, like those parents in Bethlehem suffered. We've all been sinned against We're all perpetrators and we're all victims and apart from Jesus, we're all in trouble. We're on the road to rack and ruin, on the hard road to hell. We need forgiveness for what we've done. Forgiveness for all of those shameful things, all of those hurtful things. We need healing for what others have done to us and some of us have suffered greatly. The wounds are very deep indeed. We need a change within, a new heart, 
new affections, a new principle of life because our natural desires are unbearable. They, they drag us towards that which only causes pain. We want to be free. We want to be whole. Praise God, He sent His Son Jesus to do just that, to deliver us from evil. To save us from sin and from death. To save us from ourselves. To reconcile us to God. And remake us in his image. Look unto me, the Lord says in Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22. The Lord who came into this world in Bethlehem all those years ago. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God. And there is none else. Amen.